Good morning. We are grateful for the presence of everyone here this morning. As Barrett already mentioned in our prayer, we are told that ladies had a great weekend at the ladies' retreat, and we are glad and excited for that. It's always good when the whole congregation is able to learn the Word of God. I once heard a man say in relation to things like ladies' days and ladies' retreat, only a foolish army would train half of its soldiers. And so we should be thinking about how we can train everybody in the congregation and build each other up to do the work of the Lord. A lot of exciting things going on at the Lehman Avenue congregation and a lot of exciting things coming up. Looking forward to David Chang's lesson tonight. Also be praying for Neil as he is in a gospel meeting in Ohio and we know that he'll be preaching the word there. But just pray for receptive hearts and for his strong health and the word of God to be proclaimed boldly there. Our gospel meeting is coming up next week, and we look forward to the meeting with Brother Melvin Otey. And if you're a visitor here this morning, we just want you to know that you are our welcomed and honored guest. We're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us. We have a good crowd this morning from Texas, from a congregation there who has come to help with tornado relief, and we are thankful for your presence and glad that you are choosing to worship with us here at Lehman Avenue. Two thousand years ago, the world was a lot like it is now. The Roman Empire didn't have iPads or iPhones or Corvettes, but they had a lot of the same things that we have. They had rich people and poor people, a mixed population. The rich lived in good housing, and they would have fancy dinner parties, and they were served by the poor. The poor outnumbered the rich, and they were the working class people of that day. They all sort of lived in this world together. They had the athletic competitions. There would be the gladiator battles. There were the chariot races and even the Olympic Games. They had religion. As much religion as you wanted, you could have in the Roman Empire. They had various ways to approach God. There were the private household beliefs where they thought spirits hovered over households and guarded families and groups. But then there was the public exercise of religion in which the people in these various cults and religious groups believed that the best way to gain the God's favor was to perfectly execute the rites and rituals of their faiths. And then you turn to the book of Acts. You know, they didn't have social media. They didn't have nightly news. But if they did, the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every news outlet, every social media platform would have been unable to keep silent about this small group of disciples who began in Jerusalem and soon ran throughout the Roman Empire with this message of one named Jesus who they said had died, but who had been raised from the dead. The Christians in the first century changed their world. When you study first century history and then compare it with the New Testament, there are two things that become readily apparent. Number one. Everything in the first century world was set up for the failure of Christianity. They were a small group, not well educated. They were doing something different and new, which was a no-no in the Roman Empire. But the second thing that is also true is they set their world on fire. The book of Acts says that the Christians' experience in the first century was a mixed bag. There was persecution and praise. Acts 2.41 says that those that gladly received the word were baptized and there were about 3,000 disciples immediately. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, the number's up to 5,000. And then in Acts 5.14, Luke just says there's a multitude of believers being added to the Lord. But it wasn't all good news. Some of their leaders early on were put to death. First Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and then James in Acts chapter 12. And then when you get to the book of Acts in chapter 17, as Tom read for us a moment ago, there's this statement made about Paul and his companions. Look at the text. They come into Thessalonica. And in verse 6, this isn't meant to be a compliment. It's meant as a derogatory statement when it said, those that have turned the world upside down have come here also. They were saying the Christians were messing up their world, but the truth is they were setting the world right side up. They were doing what the Romans couldn't do. 
And they changed the world. The Romans and Jews thought if we persecute them, press down on them, surely we will silence this movement and stamp it out. But the exact opposite happened. The more they pushed, the more they persecuted, the more the church grew, the more they prospered. And it just causes me to think, and it should cause all of us to think, and have this one question rise to the surface of our minds. How did they do it? What did they do that made them successful? Because the book of Acts is more than a book of conversions or the history of the first century church. It's also a manual whereby we see what they did and how they succeeded. And if we do the same things, we'll be successful in the eyes of God. How did the first century church turn their world upside down? Or you might say, how did they turn their world right side up? What did they do? Because if we do what they did, we'll be as successful as they were. You could say a lot from the book of Acts about how they did this. But this morning, I want to look at five things that the first century church did and that we can do today. They had the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit and they had the apostles. And while we don't have those things, we still have the same God, which is the most important ingredient in turning our world upside down. Let's begin. How did they do it? Number one. They preach the gospel. Now, this doesn't surprise you or me. We think about religious gatherings like this one, and we expect to hear preaching. We expect to hear the gospel proclaimed, but not in the first century world. If you would have gone to anybody in the first century world and said, how do you change the world? They might have said, you need to have an old philosophical thought that goes way back in the time that will be accepted by most people. Or maybe through military might and through strength and grit. But no one would have said you can change the world through a message that's been preached. But that's what they did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is to those that are perishing foolishness, but to us which are being saved. It is the power of God. As it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those that believe. The Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. First Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. It was in the message that they heralded. That changed their world. The Greek word translated preach that often appears in the New Testament is the word euangelizo, and it means to proclaim good news. But when it's used in the New Testament, it specifically means to proclaim good news concerning the Christian faith about Jesus Christ. So notice a few times where this word appears. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, after the church is experiencing some persecution and they're told not to preach at all anymore in the name of Jesus. Notice Acts 5 and verse 42 says daily in the temple and from house to house, they cease not to preach and to teach the Lord Jesus Christ. When you turn your Bible to Acts chapter 8, it appears three times in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Drop down to Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. Philip was in Samaria and he was preaching the thing concerning the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Jesus. And then in Acts 8.35, one-on-one, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, he opened up the scriptures, Isaiah 53, and he preached to him Jesus. Over and over again, what we find in the New Testament is these individuals were changing their world through the proclamation of the message that Jesus is the Son of God, and that everybody in the world needed to adhere and obey this message is how they changed the world and is how we will change ours. You see, in a world that was constantly overran with this influx of negativity and bad news, the Christians arrived and they said, listen, we've got good news. This life is not all there is. 
There's a God who loved you, who made you. Your sins have been pardoned. There's a hope beyond this world. And people latched on to it. They soaked it up. They had never heard anything like it. And there's never been anything like it since. And so Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in that message is proclaimed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the just will live by faith. It was in the message that the early Christians preached that made an impact on their world. Steve Jobs, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, Stephen Hawking, Woodrow Wilson, Winston Churchill, J.K. Rowling, and even Madonna were all individuals on a list titled the 100 people who changed the world in the 20th century. On that list, there's not one preacher, not in Churches of Christ, not anywhere. In fact, nobody's on the list merely for being a Christian. On this list, there are inventors, entertainers, athletes, and various people who they say changed the world. And maybe they did in one way or another, for better or for worse, we might argue, but the point is... Even in our times, people look on how you change the world, and the last thing they look at is the gospel message. And maybe sometimes we look at our efforts, and we might look down on what we're doing and not believe that we're really making a difference by preaching the truth about Jesus Christ. But the New Testament assures us that through persistence and faithfulness, we can make a difference. The first century Christians changed their world because they preached the message of Jesus Christ. And if we are going to do what they did, we need a renewed commitment to the same. It's not just preaching the message of Christ in a general way. We must not surrender the distinctiveness of our preaching. That Jesus is the only way to be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There's salvation in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The distinctiveness of salvation that only those that obey the gospel of Jesus Christ turning from sin and being immersed for the forgiveness of their sins. Acts 2.38 can rightfully be called, scripturally be called Christians. The distinctiveness of the New Testament church in a world much like theirs, a religious plurality, even some doing so in the name of Jesus Christ. We must continue to preach the truth that Jesus has one family, one church, one body. Ephesians four and verse four. That doesn't make us arrogant. It just makes us biblically accurate. And we must not apologize for it, but preach that message. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. First Peter four and verse eleven. Timothy was told to preach the word in season and out of season. It means when people want to hear it and when people don't want to hear it. These early disciples did this. And from town to town, people came clamoring for the word. George Carmack found gold in Canada's Yukon Territory in 1896, and he became a millionaire. The disciples in the first century found gold in the gospel, and they became global missionaries. Everywhere they went, they carried this message. To Athens in the schools of philosophy, in the synagogues and in the temples, Jesus is the Christ. And the Roman Empire was never the same. If we do this in our day, our world would be changed as well. How did they turn the world upside down? They preached the gospel. It's impressive. The first century church did what churches should do. They majored in what they did. They didn't major in Roman politics. They didn't get carried away with the news of their day. What they focused on was what they could do in them alone. There are a lot of things that the world can do and kingdoms of men can do that we'll never outdo them in. But there's one thing that the church of Christ can do that nobody else in the world can do. And that's to proclaim the Christ of the church. And that's what makes us different. And that's what will change our world. Now, here's number two. The first century church turned the world upside down through powerful prayer. They did this before they ever preached the sermon. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, we read of them being gathered together. And they continued steadfastly or devoted themselves to prayer. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
and also the women. But after the gospel's preached in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and also in the prayers. Everything they faced, <coughs> their response was to pray. In every circumstance they found themselves, their natural response was, we're probably going to need heaven's help for this and we shouldn't go at it alone. And so when they were persecuted in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 31, they said, Lord, grant your servants boldness that without fear we might speak your word. And when there was a controversy over a benevolent activity that they started in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, the apostles said, you find seven men to set over this business, but we will give ourselves to the word of God in prayer. Acts 6 and verse 4. When they imprisoned Peter, Acts 12 and verse 5, Luke says that prayer was made without ceasing to God on his behalf. And when Peter broke out of prison, he went to Mary's house. And Acts 12 and verse 12 says they were all gathered together there. And guess what they were doing? They were praying. But it wasn't just for their own. They would pray for strangers, for non-believers. In Acts 28, when Paul's on the island of Malta, there's a man whose father is sick there named Publius. In Acts 28, 7 through 10 says Paul laid his hands on him and he prayed. Before they sent missionaries out, Acts 13 and verse 3, they prayed. The first century church believed that their success was tied to their communication with God and that came about through prayer. Prayer says two things about our lives as individual Christians and as a congregation. Number one, when we devote ourselves to prayer, what prayer acknowledges and admits is we believe we can't do it without God's help. Prayer is a reaching up to heaven to say, these are some things we want to do. These are some things we hope to accomplish. But God, without you, John 15, 5, we really believe without you, we can do nothing. To you that hears prayer, all flesh will come, Psalm 65 and verse 2. Prayer says, God, we need divine aid. But prayer says a second thing. A commitment to prayer says, we believe that God will both hear and God will help. Cast all your care on him because he cares about you. First Peter five and verse seven. Jesus says, if you pray in faith, you can move mountains and nothing will be impossible for you. Mark eleven, twenty two to twenty four. These early Christians prayed and it turned the world upside down. Imagine being a Roman official and you've just whipped up on Paul and Silas. Or imagine being a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin and you've just beaten up on Peter and John and you follow them back to their little meeting. And you peer your head into the meeting and to your surprise, you see everybody with their heads bowed and eyes closed. You might believe in that moment that their heads are bowed in surrender, that you finally gotten them. But you would be greatly mistaken because their heads would not be bowed in surrender. It would be in those moments they'd be tapping into the greatest power known to mankind. And if you inch closer, you might hear them praying for you. First Timothy two says that men everywhere are to pray, lifting up holy hands. First Timothy two, eight. And men are to pray in every place for rulers and for authority and all in power. First Timothy two, one through four. And that's what they did. That's how they changed their world. You know, in most churches of Christ around the country on Wednesday nights, we get together and we study the Bible. And we should. It's a good thing to do. Paul says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There are passages in the New Testament which lead us to believe that the churches got together and they would read these letters out loud from Paul. Colossians 4, 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, read the epistles before the holy brethren and to get together on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night and study the Bible is a right thing to do. And we sometimes have a singing night. And, you know, the New Testament says we're to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that wouldn't be just limited to what we do on the first day of the week. It would be right to get together at other times to learn new songs and also to strengthen one another through teaching 
and through preaching, through the singing that we do, to admonish one another and glorify God in heaven. But it would also be right, in keeping with the New Testament, to get together for scheduled times of prayer. What happened to prayer meetings? I don't know, but I know that the need for such has not vanished. Isn't it impressive to you that in Acts chapter 12, when Peter breaks out of prison, he knows where to go and he knows what they're doing. He knew what house to go to. He knew they'd be gathered together praying on God's behalf to God for him. They changed the world through prayer. And in our world, we will make a difference. We can turn the world upside down through powerful prayers, reaching up to God and asking him to do what only he can do. We're told to pray without ceasing. But if we're going to pray without ceasing, we first have to get started, don't we? Continue instantly in prayer. Romans 12 and verse 12 is what made the difference for them. In 1962, there was the famous case between the Engel, Engel versus Vital case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. It was led by a man named Stephen Engel. He was a Jewish man. This was the, the Supreme Court case that got prayers removed from school. Engel was a Jewish man, and he believed that schools should not have a one-size-fits-all prayer for everybody to follow. He said it might violate people of other faiths, their convictions, or people that have no faith at all. He led the way, but there were other parents and other families who followed behind him, and they won. They were successful. And I believe from 1962, maybe up to the present, Christians have been up in arms about it, at least in our country. Why would they take prayers out, prayer out of school? Isn't it a good way to start the day? Some of you remember. You say, I remember when we started the day with prayer. And we, why would they take that out? Why would they do a disservice to children? It's always good to start a day praying and talking to God. And you know the government can take prayer out of schools. But woe to us if we take it out of the church. We might they might be looking, the first century Christians looking up the hallways of time at us and saying, what are they doing? How do they think they can overcome and win without prayer? Don't they know it's how we conquered the Roman Empire? Why do they rush through it and why do they just kind of breeze through it as if it's not important? It was our secret ingredient. Why have they taken it out? Why have they dumbed it down? I know there's a thin line between a long, strong biblical prayer and a hostage situation. I, I get it. But at the same time. Are we as committed to prayer as we should be? Do we really believe that it and it alone can change the world in which we live? They did. They prayed in prison, Acts 16, 25. They beat Paul and Silas and they said, we'll just talk to God about it. They prayed under great fire and persecution in Acts chapter 4. Every time you turn a page in the New Testament, what you find these Christians doing is giving themselves over to prayer. And to the degree that we do the same, we will change our world. How did the first century Christians turn the world upside down? They believed prayer made a difference, but not only that, they had a perpetual boldness. They had the word of God on their lips as they knew scripture. They preached. They had their heads bowed and they reached up to God, but they also could not be intimidated. They couldn't be bullied into silence. If you read through the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, one thing you're going to one thing we'll find is how courageous and how convicted these first century Christians were. A.W. Tozer said Christians should be the most confident people in the world. Not cocky or sure of ourselves, but sure of him. And it should make a difference in how we live. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 4 and notice the boldness that's here throughout this chapter. Three times in Acts chapter 4 we run across this word for boldness. The Greek word for boldness is parousia and it means to be outspoken. It means to speak frankly, without apology. We sometimes use this word in the same way. We'll talk about someone who's told a bold-faced lie. What does that mean? It means little Johnny has chocolate milk on his face and on his shirt. And you say, who drank the chocolate milk? And he says, not me. 
Just a bold-faced lie. Frank, outspoken, without apology. That's the idea behind the Greek word boldness. Just to say what needs to be said and be unashamed. After they tell Peter and John, no more preaching in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, they took knowledge of them. That they were ignorant and unlearned men. And they saw the boldness with which they spoke. And they said, these men had been with Jesus. It's ironic that these men would do it before the Sanhedrin. Because just months earlier, these same men were cowered into fear by these authorities. And when they saw it, they perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned. They haven't been to our school. They haven't been trained in rabbinics. And yet they're bold and they're courageous. And we have not seen boldness like that since Jesus of Nazareth. But then in verse 29, when the apostles pray to God in Acts chapter 4, they pray that God will grant them boldness to speak the word without fear. And then in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, the word appears again as they are granted boldness and they speak the message like they should. They were convicted. They were courageous. They didn't apologize. And we need to get our boldness back as Christians. We need to be outspoken about what we believe and why we believe it. We won't be able to win our world over by being God's silent partners, by allowing political correctness to sort of usher us into a corner to where we're not willing to speak up and say plainly what we believe and why. Even people who didn't agree with them could not deny their boldness. It's a story told about one man who was a pastor in a denominational church, and he would go on occasion to this church across town to hear another preacher. And on one occasion, he was called in the assembly, and people said, why are you here? You don't agree with what he preaches. He says, I know, but he does. He was convicted by this man's conviction, and people in our world will be as well. After Paul was converted, it said he was already testifying about the Lord boldly in Damascus. Acts 9 and verse 27. In Acts 9.29, when the disciples received him and he was approved as one among the twelve, Acts 9.28 and 29 says, Paul spoke the word boldly. In Acts 14 and verse 3, when they went to Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, Paul and Barnabas preached the message with boldness and with conviction. And the book of Acts ends with this very same thought. The last verse in the book of Acts, Acts 28 and verse 31 says, Paul was in prison for two whole years in his own rented house and he spoke the word boldly. No man forbidding him. He was courageous and it changed their world. In August or September of last year, you remember there was the upheaval in Afghanistan and people that claimed to be Christians were there. And here was the message that was being sent to them by the Taliban. They said, we know who you are. We know what you're doing and we will find you. You know, words like that are not foreign to the New Testament. You think about Stephen being persecuted and Saul running in and out of churches and committing men to prison. And when that happened in the first century, the response of the Christians was pretty much this. We will see you tomorrow. We won't stop preaching. You can't run us off. You can't back us into a corner. We're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were bold in their doing. And it made a difference. When you think about boldness right now, who do you think in our world is bold? Who do you think is outspoken and convicted? I would say the atheists. I would say the secularists. I would say the unbeliever. People that are bold right now are in that camp. And if you disagree with them, they will shout you down and show you why your thinking is backwards and why you're wrong. Now, we don't need to borrow the obnoxious spirit or the works of the flesh that's often used to perpetuate those ideas. But we could all use a double dose of boldness. Not being afraid to be seen praying over our food at the job or inviting people to worship service in the public square, speaking out boldly, being Christians and unashamed. We don't need to be obnoxious or foolish, but we do need to be people who are with Jesus Christ and are unashamed of being with him and we align with him.
The Christians in the first century turned their world upside down because they knew what they believed and why. And they were bold. And when other people saw it, it drew them in. When other people saw their conviction, they said, I want to, I want some of that. I want to know why you're so sure of what you believe. And it'll change our world as well. Boldness and conviction and integrity says, I believe Jesus is the son of God. And I don't just believe it for me. I believe you need to know something about it as well. It makes us unashamed. Second Timothy one and verse 12, because we know in whom we've placed our faith and whom we have believed. And we're persuaded he's able to keep what we've committed against that day. We've got to be bolder. We've got to be courageous. We've got to be unapologetic. Ready to give a defense for the reason of the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. First Peter three fifteen. It's what made them distinguished among a society that said everybody do the same thing. Everybody believe the same thing. And if you believe otherwise, just whisper about it. Don't say anything. The early Christians said we just can't do that. And when they said we'll beat you, they said, well, you're just going to have to beat us. But we can't help but speak the things which we've seen and heard. Acts four and verse 20. And when they threatened them and they said no more preaching in the name of Jesus, they said, Acts five twenty nine. We must obey God rather than men. First century church was one that was bold and it made all the difference because people had not seen boldness like that since Jesus Christ. Think about our world right now. And what do people know about Christians? Do they know us for our boldness? Are we known for our conviction and what we believe? And do we hold strongly to our convictions without apology? Here's number four. First century Christians turned the world upside down because they practiced a radical love. When you read the New Testament and read what Jesus says, beware not to make the mistake of believing that Christians invented love because they did not. There were people that loved one another in the Roman Empire and there are people that aren't Christians that love people today. We haven't invented love. Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. The first century Christians didn't invent love. People have always loved one another. But what made Jesus's love different, he says, is I've loved you. It's a sacrificial love, but it goes beyond that. People in the Roman Empire would love one another, but they only love their own. The Jews had corrupted their view of the old law. And if you were a Jew, you were on their team. They loved you and that was fine. And the Romans, if you were strong and mighty, they would love you too. But if you ever stumbled, if you ever failed, the Romans would step over you and continue to press toward their goals. Because in the Roman Empire, only the strong survive. We don't have time to help up a weakling or somebody that can't pull his own weight. And then the Christians arrived and said, now we're different. We love everybody. They sold their possessions and goods. Acts chapter 2, 43 and 45 And they shared them with everybody who had a need. In Acts 4 and verse 32, they were of one heart and one soul. Nobody said what they possessed was their own. This wasn't communism. This was free will giving because their hearts had been stirred by the crucified Christ. They departed with their goods and laid them at the apostles' feet. But not just on those occasions. There's a woman named Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. And she used her free time and skill to make coats and garments for widows that were in need. And she shared them. When we read about the miraculous events in the book of Acts, it's not just miracles that are being performed. Luke is trying to tell us, look at how much they cared about people. When Luke says they healed this person and then he says, by the way, they've been in this condition for a long time. That's Luke's way of saying nobody cared about this person until the Christian showed up. So in Acts 14 and verse 8, when he says this man was crippled at Lystra from birth, this is how long he's been in the condition. Who's going to show up to help him? Paul and Barnabas. The man at the gate called beautiful in Acts chapter three. He had been in this condition for a long time. And who shows up? Peter and John. When they heard there was a famine, 
Acts chapter 11, they just gathered up their resources. Acts 11, 27 through 30. And they said, we're going to share. We want to help other people. First century Christians turned the world upside down because they loved and they did it in what we might call a radical fashion. You look into one of their assemblies and you saw rich people and poor people, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and sometimes their masters in the very same assembly. And how do you account for it? What are you going to say? What brought these people together? It was their like love for Jesus Christ. And so Paul could write. As many of us as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put them on. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. But you're all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. What do we mean when we say somebody is a radical Muslim? What does that mean? When we say someone practices Islam and they're radical, what we mean is this person does it in a unique way. Specifically, as it relates to the Quran, we mean that this person takes the passages about violence from the Quran literally and they will exercise it on who they believe to be their opponents. And we would say, however big or small you believe that group to be, these are the radical people, the radical Muslims. What would radical Christians look like? You say those Muslims that are radical, they really interpret the Quran supposedly literally what what they believe Allah has said. That's what they do. What would people look like? who followed Jesus Christ and were radical. And I mean, when Jesus says love, they don't they don't wonder. They don't worry. They don't second guess. They just do what he says. When Jesus says love your enemies, they just Matthew 5, 44 through 48. They just love their enemies. When Jesus says, as you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Galatians six and verse 10. They just do it. They don't care what you vote. They don't care where you're from. They don't care who you are, what you've done. They're going to love you. They may not approve. They're going to love you. They won't retaliate. There's nothing you can do to make them retaliate against you. Romans 12, 19 through 21, because they believe one day God's going to right all wrongs. What would you call those people? You would call them radical. What can you do to them? Nothing. That's why they turn the world upside down. When you beat people and threaten them and say, we're going to kill you if you stop. And they continue to persist, believing that you can only harm the body, but not the soul. How can you stop those people? No wonder they conquered Rome. We have the same tools, the same commands, the same marching orders to accomplish the same goal. Our radical love will change our world because our world is much like Rome. It's not absent of love. It's not. Everybody knows how to love. Nobody needs the parable of the Good Samaritan for their grandchild or for their grandma. We know how to love people that are like us. And our world is very good at at that. It's very polarized right now. People are ready to fly off the handle only at those that they're opposed to. But what if Christians were ready to fly in and love people no matter what they believed and professed? See, radical Christianity wouldn't cause us to get into planes and run them into buildings or strap bombs to ourselves. It would cause us to run into people with a compassionate and Christ-like love, strap our lives with humility and change our community and outworking from there to change our world. When Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, they said, John eleven thirty six, behold how he loved him. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You just keep killing them and they just keep growing. We can't get rid of them. And in part, it was because of how much they love. Now, here's the fifth and final way the first century church turned the world upside down. They placed their hope in God. This was probably Paul's favorite way to defend Christianity. When he was put on trial before the Jews and even before the Romans, this is what he would say. When they said, why are you doing this? He would say, it's because of the hope I have in God. Acts 23 and verse 6, he said, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and with hope concerning the resurrection of the dead is the reason I'm on trial. 
Acts 24.15, he says, I believe the law and the prophets. And because of that hope, I stand before you. After shipwreck and persecution, he finally makes his way to Rome. And in Acts 20 and verse 28 and verse 20, he says, for the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. What set the first century Christians apart was they had an unflinching hope in God. Now, hope in the New Testament is not wishful thinking. It's a strong confidence that that which one expects to happen will. And so we read passages like Colossians 1 and verse 5, which says the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Or in hope of eternal life, which God who can't lie promised before the world began. Titus 1 and verse 2. Just because our hope presently is invisible does not mean that it's imaginary. It's just as real as you and me. We believe in a real Jesus who died a real death and experienced a real resurrection. And we'll enjoy his real and factual second coming. Paul would say we are saved by hope. And what a man sees, why does he hope for it? If we hope for what we don't see, then we wait for it with patience. What set them apart was the Romans were telling people, eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow you'll be dead. This life is all there is. And the Christians came along and said, that's not true. If you think this world is something, just wait till you see what God has in store. They had a hope. And when they talked about their possessions and their treasures, they were always pointing this way. It changed the world. The Romans believed that all we have is what we have right in front of us. All we have is this seize the day mentality. And the Christians were saying this life is merely a preface for what's to come in eternity. And God has great things in store for you, but you are going to have to respond to him. We've placed our hope in Jesus Christ and we're not turning back. They wouldn't apologize for it. They weren't afraid or ashamed of it. They really believed. J.R. Tolkien is the famous author of the Lord of the Rings book series. He wrote a paper called On Fairy Stories, which he, in 1938, was set to deliver at the University of St. Andrews. What he talked about in the paper was the fact that humans are hopelessly in love with fairy stories or fairy tales, we might say. We just can't break away from it. And if you like Disney or Marvel, you know we haven't moved too far away from this. He said there's a reason. Stories and fictional accounts offer humans five things that the human mind just can't turn away from, no matter how much you desire to be otherwise. He says what we want, number one, is we want to escape time. In those movies, in those fairy stories, you get to escape time. He said, number two, you get to escape death. People live forever in these movies, especially the good guys. But number three, Tolkien said, we want fellowship with non-human beings. Number four. In these movies, these fairy tales, in these fairy stories, fourth thing Tolkien said we want that they offer is we want to see the ultimate good triumph over evil. The good guys always win. And then the fifth thing Tolkien said we want that they offer is a love from which we can never part. And most people in our world, they go to the movies, they buy the popcorn, the credits roll, they leave and they say we'll be back in a year. When they remake the same movie with basically the same plot, we close the books and we say, well, now that was just a story. And people that get this backwards, they say, well, Christianity is just like that. But what they've missed is it's actually the other way around. They stole the idea from Christianity. Don't you see if you're a Christian? You will escape time. First Thessalonians 4.17 says, so we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. You will escape death. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Those who believe in me will never really die. John 11, 25 and 26. You'll have fellowship with non-human beings. We'll be like him and see him face to face. Revelation 22, 4, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. We'll have fellowship face to face with God in a way we haven't known here. You'll see ultimate good triumph over evil. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. 
And in the end, you'll finally lay hold on love from which you can never part. You can't be separated from it. Paul said, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or things present or things to come or height nor depth nor any other creature will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is not a fairy tale. The Christian hope are the factual things that we find in the gospel. And it's what every human heart longs for, whether they know it or not. And the first century Christians changed their world because they said, we brought good news to you and you can lay hold on it. God saved you. But not only that. This body will wear down and it will wear out, but he's got a new body prepared for you. And this world will be consumed by fire. But there's a new heavens and a new earth, a new environment. Second Peter 3.13, just beyond this one. And if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, whom we preach, you will enjoy it. When Paul and company came to Thessalonica, they were terrified. They said, these people who have turned the world upside down, they've come here. They thought the Christians came to do them harm, but the Christians really came to rescue them. What the first century Christians did is what Christians in every century must do, and that is make a difference in our world. How are we going to do it? Preach the message that God's given to us. Never apologize for just being a New Testament Christian. Powerful prayers. Perpetual boldness where we keep coming back, keep continuing on, believing what we've always believed. By being those individuals who place our ultimate hope in God, realizing that this life is not all there is. And by being individuals that practice a radical love, the world desperately needs, but rarely ever sees. If we do that in the centuries past our lifetime, they'll look back and say, you know, the Christians in 2022, they turned the world upside down. Never seen anybody like them since. And we can continue to show people the way to eternal life. If you're not a Christian, if you don't share in our faith, we echo the same message of our spiritual ancestors 2000 years ago. Jesus is the son of God. John 8, 24, he says, if you don't believe that, you'll die in your sins. That's the last thing God wants. And so he came to die in your place. Turn from sin and repent. Acts 17, 30, all men everywhere must repent. Confess with the mouth which your heart comes to believe through the message preached. Jesus is the Son of God. And then allow your body to be immersed in water. Have your sins washed away. You'll be different from everybody in the world. But everything about you will be different in heaven. He'll write your name in the book of life. And one day you'll know a love from which you can never part. If you're a Christian and you're struggling, if we can help you in any way, like the first century Christians prayed, we would love to pray with you and pray on your behalf as your spiritual family in Christ. If we can help you in any way, if this is your invitation and you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.